The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Colossians chapter 2. Our sermon will be looking at verses 13 through 15, but I'd like to begin reading back in verse 6. What you're about to hear is not in any substantial way different than what Moses and Israel heard from the mountain. It was the word of God then, it is the word of God now. We should listen any time that God's word is read to us. So please, as his people, listen to him. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, According to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Well, the grass will wither and the flower does fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our great God and Father, we come before you today as your people. We come not because we have any deserving in and of ourselves to come, But we draw near because you and your word both command it as well as beckon us to come. We come at your invitation. We come with a king's writ in our hands. Saying that we can come before your throne and call on your name. Father, we confess this week that we have in the things that we've done as well as the things that we've left undone, we've sinned against you. Father, we have no excuses for our sins. We cannot explain them away. 
We dare not seek to justify them. We desire to say about them the same thing that your word says about them. Father, we pray that you'd forgive us of our sins, that you would blot them out from before your presence, that you would bury them in the sea of your forgetfulness. And Lord, we know at what cost our forgiveness comes. And we're thankful that we have a Savior whose grace was greater even than the sum of our sins. And that he showed the strength of his arm on Calvary and laid to open shame those who were imprisoning your people that he blotted out for all time the record of debt that stood against us. Never shall they rise again. Father, it's in the joy of this forgiveness that we sing to you, that we live circumspectly before you, and we pray, O God, that we would constantly dwell in our hearts and in our minds the forgiveness we've received at Calvary. We pray that we'd move forward in obedience, not to earn your favor, but because we have your favor. Not to earn your smile, but because in Christ we have your smile. And that you love us, your children, and you haven't wearied yourself with us. Lord, we thank you that your love towards us is patient. We are a people that require much patience. We're thankful that your love is kind. And that you bear with us in our weaknesses. We're thankful that You, as the great shepherd, walk carefully with your little lambs. Lord, we pray that you would continue to be the strong comforter of your people. Lord, we pray for our dear sister Lucy, that you would comfort her in the loss of Tom. Lord, we pray for the Dentons and the Zorans, that you would continue to be their comforter, So we continue to grieve Mateo. We pray, O God, that you'd be the God of all comfort to the Borgmans, Lord, as they see Dee drawing near to the end of her days. O God, would you be near to Brian and be near to Ariel and their family. Lord, we pray for Dolores. O God, that you would Rescue her and deliver her into your presence. Father, please send out your word into our hearts in a transforming way today. We thank you that this morning we get to gaze upon the Savior. And we pray that we would do just that. Gaze upon him by faith. See his beauty and that all lesser things would pale in comparison to him. Father, he's been too small in our eyes. Cause him to be the sum and the summit of our affections. We pray this in his name. Amen.
Well, I couldn't help but see the, uh, the irony of how I'd hoped to uh, introduce the sermon today, but I'm sure as soon as I begin, you'll realize the, uh, well, just the appropriateness of it. The Apostle Paul says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Seeing as I've never felt more like a 12-year-old looks since I was 12, couldn't help but see the Lord's humor in it. Apostle Paul says, when we became a man, we put away childish things. And the, the idea behind that phrase is actually really, really simple to understand. When you mature, there's some things that maybe you did at one point in your life that you Uh, well, now shouldn't do later on in life. And while we could illustrate it from uh, from, uh, several avenues, uh, we'll just try to do it a few different ways. There's something about when you have a baby and that little baby starts to grow and people feel obligated to say something about the baby, uh, they will often compliment the baby on how fat the baby is. At some point, that stops in life. At some point, you know, no one says like, oh, you're so fat, that's cute. At some point, and I don't know when it is, three, four years old, maybe. At some point, uh, what was appropriate as a child is now like, okay, you know, maybe you want to think about a gym membership. Or uh, you begin, if you're at the swimming pool, in the shallow end of the pool. But, but hopefully the sum and the breadth and length of your swimming career is not lived out in the kiddie end of the pool. At, one, at some point, like that becomes weird. Hanging out on the kiddie side of the pool. You actually got to work your way towards the deep end of the pool. Now that happens on so many different levels uh, of life. And sometimes we... Linger longer than we should. Playing video games when you're like, all right, it's time to get a job. Uh, Maybe that is a word from the Lord to someone here today who needs to hear it. But there are other times where we think something is of a childish nature and should be left behind when in fact it should not. The gospel is is one of those primary things that we might think, I'm a Christian, I've been saved, I've been walking with the Lord for decades, I'm ready to grow beyond the kiddie pool of the gospel. My argument today, brothers and sisters, is that you never grow beyond the gospel. It's not like the kiddie in the pool where you're going, you know, it's kind of shallow, I'm ready for some deeper stuff. You will never in all your life plumb the the depths of the riches of the gospel. you'll, You'll never find the bottom of it. You'll never find the truths that are so simple when they first came to you. You'll never get to that point in life where you're like, you know what, I've got it all figured out. If ever you think you have it all figured out, there should be like, Warning sirens going off in your mind saying, you know what, I, I probably should reevaluate my perspective on um, well, my understanding. The Apostle Paul wants to lay before us this simple truth today. You never outgrow the gospel. You preach it to yourself every day and often multiple times throughout the course of a day. It's not like the gospel is that thing that you you come to accept and realize and then that, that brings you into the fold of Christianity, 
And then like you're ready for those, the bachelor's degree, the master's degree, the PhD of theology, and, and as though you were to depart from the gospel, the sum and breadth of your Christian life is filling out and understanding in fuller, deeper ways that same simple gospel that brought you in. And if I, and Charlie and Brian and, and others could attest to this very easily, the most complex situations that come in for counseling, guess where we always drive them back to? It's not like, well, all right, there's some oddities about your understanding of the uh, hypostatic union we need to clear. That'll fix your marriage problem. Like, no, we're always driving back to the gospel. I don't know if you've noticed, like, Charlie's got one message, whether you're in his office or he's up here. It's all about Jesus. And hopefully the same is true of Brian and I. We're always driving it right back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to just marinate in the text today, the the fact that we never outgrow the gospel. And I want to do so under three headings. The first is, is this, the dead are made alive again. The dead are made alive. We'll see that in verse 13. If you look at it with me, there's a shift that happens in the beginning of verse 13. While in uh, verse 12, he was speaking of our being buried with uh, Christ in his, uh, in his death and then raised with him from the dead. There's a shift that happens as Paul opens up verse 13, and the shift is one of of emphasis, looking at the work that Christ has done in his, while being crucified on the cross, dead and buried, raised again, his, his attention then shifts to you, the reader, or in this case, the listener, and he reaches out and, and lovingly grabs the lapel or the front of your shirt and says to you this morning, and, and you, you, little old you sitting there in your seat today, you have a history. You have, uh, well, so, uh, something we actually have to talk about. He wants the address to you as the listener to be unavoidable and inescapable. He doesn't want you to hear this next section and be tempted to engage the, the, well, the Holy Spirit's elbow to the person next to you. This isn't like it's for them. It's for you. It's for you who hear my voice today from God's word. He's not talking about, well, he is by extension talking about other people in the room. He wants you to hear it. You to be reminded of where you were when God found you, or if you're outside of Christ, where you are today, sitting there listening. For some of you, this is history. For others of you who hear my voice, it's present reality. Both need to listen. Both need to hear what God's word says to you today. But you, being dead in your trespasses, 
Obviously, the death that he speaks of here is not a physical death, although that would be the consequence of sin if carried out, like the unavoidable consequence of sin is physical death. But he's speaking spiritually. You and I and all who've drawn breath outside of Christ were raised, lived, breathed, ate, and slept in a state of spiritual death. That is what we were. And this death was due to our trespasses. The the word that he uses for trespasses simply means to to cross a line. The word picture is something like the law of God carved down in the ground where you were not supposed to go. In the things you said, in the things you do, in the things you think. And as creator, he said, do not cross that line. And what did we do? We ran across it. We set up shop on the other side of the line. Our lives were lived on that side of the line in transgression or in violation of God's law. And and we could use several words to describe the essence of this, but it all comes back to the ways in which we've rebelled against God. We are trespassers. We are transgressors. We, we are, just in the most simplest of terms, sinners. We've missed the mark of what God's law calls us to in every area of our life. And it's at this point that I would urge you, if you're sitting there, if, there's a, if you have a bad case of the yeah, buts, Don't do that. Don't sit and think, well, yeah, but, I mean, I'm not as bad as others. I could look around this room and find other people I'm not as bad. He's talking to you. You are at the root of what and who you are. A law violator. A sinner. You can explain it away. You'd be like, it's my parents. Kind of weird that they're here now. It's not you guys. I'm just using an example. But if you're listening, you might say, it was my parents. It was my situation. I was poor. I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. I was born in California. Whatever excuse you want to use. <laughs> There's no excuses. We are Rebels. And that rebellion came at a price that we still to this day can't wrap our minds around. It was no empty threat in the garden when God told Adam, the day you eat, you die. That was not an empty threat. We, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, are dead and sin and trespasses before God enters into our life. The second way that he describes it is that we were dead in trespasses and in the, and it's an odd phrase, uncircumcision of your flesh. Now there's kind of two ways that we could take this. The first would be to understand that 
the audience to which Paul is writing is primarily, if not almost entirely, a Gentile audience. So they, they were not part of the covenant community of Israel. They were not those who had received the mark of the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision. So he might be saying, so you, you, specifically Corinthians, or you, Nevadans and Californians and a couple others sprinkled in there, Washingtonians and others, you, bunch of Gentiles, bunch of, bunch of goyim, not part of Israel. That might well be what he meant. And at the root of that isn't like that he's making a big deal of what nation you're from or not from, as much as he's saying you being alienated from God, you being outside of the scope of the covenants and promises, that might well be what he means. But he might also have a, uh, another way that he meant it. If you look back at verse 13, and you were dead. Oh, excuse me, I'm in 13. Back up into verse 11. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off the body of the flesh. A little different phrase there, by the circumcision of Christ. We mentioned last Sunday that what Paul is talking about there is that we had hearts that weren't circumcised. That we needed God to cut our hearts and give us a new heart that could love him, whereas before all we loved was ourselves and everything we thought would please self. And so we needed a new heart. And the way that he describes that is the, the cutting of our heart by the cutting of Christ upon the cross. That might well be also what he means. I'm actually going to argue because I like cake and eating it too. I'm going to argue he might just have both in mind. You... Gentile audience, alienated from God. You, uncircumcised of heart, hostile in the inner man. You who have a heart that from the moment of birth, its heartbeat, when the doctor put that little thing that listens to heartbeats, it was saying, me, 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 me. I know parents like, the babies are so innocent. You're like, no, they're not. You ever see a baby get mad? We'd tear your arm off and beat you with it if it could. (laughs) Wasn't in the notes, but from the moment we were born, I loved me. Why? I didn't have a new heart. Could I, with all the trying within me, change this wretched thing out? No. Now, for all the trying in the world, could I change this thing? I needed Christ to cut my heart. You need Christ to give you a new heart. I actually think that he, he's probably drawing on both of those imagery of a new heart as well as being outside the covenant community of, of the people of Israel, us being circum, uncircumcised in flesh. That is who and what we were, if you're outside of Christ, that's, that's where you are today, alienated from God and in need, desperate need of a new heart. Look at what he says at the second half of verse 13. What did God do to you when you were in that state? Well, notice, God then made, you, made alive together with him. So notice, and, and I don't want to, 
pick at things that aren't significant. Notice there's another shift that happens right in the middle of verse 13. The verse opens by, and you. Now notice he wants to be really, really clear. It was not the you who made you alive again together with Christ. God did that. You did not. I didn't. You didn't. Your parents didn't. God made you alive. God drew near to you when you were dead. When you're in a dead state, how mobile are you? Not super mobile. That's why it's called dead, not sick. So this whole, this whole like, all you got to do is ask Jesus into your heart. They're dead. They're not asking anybody for anything. They're spiritually inoperable, immobile, not hearing, not responding to anything. It was in our state of total helplessness that God burst into the scene. That God opened the grave. Just, I mean, similar to how he did it with Lazarus. When Lazarus was dead, he didn't say, Lazarus, do you want to be raised? And Lazarus was like, okay. No. His voice went out. Lazarus was made alive. That's, that's how God saved you if you're here today and you're in Christ. There was a, there was a moment where he spoke and said, mine live and he and he said it to people that shocked me <laughs> right he at some point he tells eric live he told forschler that too <laughs> he told fred he, I, I mean if you're in this room and a christian he said it to you And we should revel in that, knowing that God didn't pick me because I was super special. If anything, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he he goes for the weaklings, the runts, because it shows even more his power to save. So you might be like, I don't like you talking about me like that way. I don't care. That's the kind of people that God saves. I'm really happy God saves like weak runts. Otherwise, there'd be no hope for me. Otherwise, there'd be no hope for you. He delights. He's pleased to do it. He loves raising the dead. And notice at the end of verse 13, he mentions that that God is the one making us alive, and he does it in or with Christ. So Christ is the the only one through whom we have life, the only one that we can be raised by. This is very similar language to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when, notice the similarity of the language, we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's almost the exact same wording all the way through. By grace, we have been saved. Now, when he says God made alive, and then you see the word, if you have the ESV in front of you, and you all should, uh, together with, you might say, okay, so when he made Christ alive, there's something tied to that, made alive together with, that then impacts me. So 2,000 years ago when Christ was raised from the dead, 
was I raised with regards to time then? Well, I don't think he's trying to draw an emphasis to a chronological or time-based element to it. Um, So if he's not doing that, is he saying, well, then the resurrection I received was the very same as what Christ has received? I actually don't think he's saying that. Though, uh, in the resurrection of the dead, at the end of the days, will we have a resurrection very, very similar, like unto, and modeled after Christ? Obviously so. But is that his point in this text in particular? I think his actual point here is that the resurrection of Christ provides all of the groundwork and justification for you being raised from the spiritual dead. As one commentator by the name of Harris says, the resurrection of Christians from spiritual deadness to new life is grounded in, in a consequence of Christ's own rising from the realm of the dead to immortal life. Whereas 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, if indeed then Christ has not been raised, your faith is slightly misguided. It's not what it says. Your faith is futile, and he tacks something on the end, and you're still in your sin. Paul in that text is saying, Christian, if Christ was not raised from the dead bodily, Your faith is a sham. And guess what? Even worse than that, if you could get worse than that, the sin that you've committed all your life long, you are not forgiven. But because Christ is raised from the dead, it's no game of make-believe for us to say in Christ and faith in Christ, you can be forgiven of all your sin. It's it's not a game of wishful thinking. And in fact, that is exactly where Paul concludes verse 13. We're made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, I'm going to argue that the all modifies trespasses instead of saying us all, like all of us. I think that that's actually implied in us being uh, in the plural. Why is it important that the all then would modify trespasses? That would mean your most awful sin. The one that you're embarrassed to even think about is not outside the purview of what God forgives. The ones that you're ashamed about the ones that have been hidden, the ones that maybe others don't know about, those are not outside the purview of what God forgives. And it's not like he says, you know what, I will forgive up to a certain point. Anything after that, it's it's on your tab, not God's. We would all be in deep trouble if that's the way God dealt with us. What if he said, all of your sins before you got saved, I'll foot the bill for that. But after you're saved, on you. How would you fare? Not well. Yeah, not good at all. That's not what he does. 
having forgiven us every last one of our sins. Not one was missing. Not one outside the purview of what Christ did. Not one forgotten, and like uh, maybe some things with the IRS, turn up on the last day. Not one will turn up on the day of judgment and be said, you know what, actually this wasn't paid for by Christ. You're going to have to pick this one up on your own. If even one isn't covered in the blood of Christ, your soul will not enter his rest. It will suffer an eternity of wrath. But praise be to God for those lovely descriptive words at the end of 13. All our trespasses. Even puts it in the plural so you know that all the kinds of them is covered by the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should look at that and be in awe. We should, we should have two kind of, well, at least if you think like me, and that's a scary proposition for many of you. If you think like I do, you think, first off, wow, that he would forgive me all of that. The second thought that comes quickly on the heels is, but how could he do that? Is he like that thing that happens in the mind of a grandparent that wasn't there when they were a parent? There's a difference. They should do brain scans on this. When you're a parent, law, Sinai. When you're a grandparent, you're like, you've come to Mount Zion. And they bring them like sodas right before bed and they laugh as they do it. It's like pulling a grenade and being like, good luck. <laughs> Something happens. So is God like a grandparent and goes, you know what? We're going to not tell mom and dad that grandpa gave you all those milkshakes right before he sent you home. <laughs> it's not the way God works. Would that, that would actually violate his justice. God couldn't do that. It's not like God saying, hey, you broke your law. I'm going to not care about it. We'll just cut. You're like, Pretend it didn't happen. If that's the way that God forgives, number one, he's not just, and number two, you're not forgiven. Both of those are really bad. But praise God, he does truly, actually, fully cancel our debts. And so that's our second point this morning. And all the points are not going to be weighted equally according to the clock. The debts are... Fully canceled. Look at verse 14. He's forgiven us all of our trespasses. and he, It's like he anticipates the how question. How could God do that? Well, verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. So the how describing the, the means by which we can be forgiven. And that first word, canceling. A beautiful word. It means to wipe away, or with this specific usage that's cited, it means to remove so as to leave no trace. 
It's not like some of your woodworking projects where you, you gouge the wood. You're like, I'm going to have to epoxy this thing and sand it. Like, no, that, that, that's not what he's done. He really removes the stain of sin so that no trace of it is left. He actually removes it. And so what is the thing that he removes? The way that he describes it in verse 14 is the record of debt. The, the word he uses is, uh, it means to, to write with the hand a signed certificate of debt or a promissory note signed in the debtor's own hand. This is different than when you go out to lunch with your friend, and whether you meant this on purpose or didn't, God knows your heart, and you're, you get to the end, you go like, oh, uh, I forgot my wallet. And you just gaze at them until they say, I, I, I get you. And you say quickly, what do you say at the end? I get you next time. They know full well, you probably ain't going to do that. But that's different. It's neither here nor there. So now you're like, I'm never taking Pastor Daniel out to lunch. That's, I, I know his tricks. I think my wife at home all the time when I go out with Pastor Brian for lunch, but that's a different time for a different, different story, different time. So it's not like an IOU like that. Like a very informal, casual, hey, can you spot me lunch? I'll get you later. I'll get the next one. This is a handwritten note of debt signed with your own handwriting that you cannot deny. You can't say, I, I don't know where that receipt came from. Like, well, you signed it. Even though you just, I know you all do your squiggle marks so that no one could tell what your name was. It's not even like that. It's like your name clearly written in your own handwriting. Paul says you have one of those. Everyone who's drawn breath has one of those. A record and accounting of wrongs against God. And there's no escaping that it belongs to you. There's no denying it. There's no excusing it. There's no trying to say, well, I tried, but you have a record of debt. It's signed in your own hand. And what makes it even a bit worse? Notice what he says. It stood against you. Just vivid language for Paul to use. The, the, the picture behind it is that of, of a hostile debt. It's not like you found, have you ever like, Gone through your jeans at the end of the day, and you're like, five bucks? I forgot about that. It's not like, like one of those things that turns up. It's like a hostile, opposing enemy to you. He actually uses two different ways of, of saying the word against you. Th this is not neutral. In fact, it, it reminds me of the story of when uh, the the false prophet Balaam goes out to, uh, to curse Israel for a, a pagan king. And as he's going, the, the angel of Yahweh stands against him in the narrow path. And the donkey can see it, but Balaam can't. And the sword of the angel of Yahweh is drawn. And he has intent to use the sword. It's not just that it's out for fun. The intent is against opposed death imminent. And then the story gets 
hilarious as he gets into an argument with his donkey. That's where the illustration breaks down. It's like that, but with a record of all your sins. They stand against you. Justice's sword is drawn. Intent to fulfill what the word of God says in several places, not least of which would be Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The soul that sins shall die. That's the against, the opposition, the hostileness of the record of this debt. And it just to make it worse, it has legal legitimacy to it. It, it could hold up in court. Notice verse 14 speaks of legal demands. So not only is it, and we've talked about this before, it, it, it's like an accounting ledger. And you know, if one thing, accountants are thorough, detail-oriented people. Uh, so it's detailed, it's accurate, it is uh, hostile, it's against you. It, it, it is armed with all of the uh, penalties of the law, and it could stand up in the court of God's law and of his justice. He is, it holds water, legally speaking. It cannot be overturned. There's no way to avoid it. It would be like multiple eyewitnesses taking the stand. It'd be like video evidence, not the grainy stuff that they always seem to always get. And you're like, can't we get better cameras in our you know, world than these things? It's like a crystal clear 4K video of everything you've ever done. No Photoshop involved, wasn't needed. Your life detailed down to the most minute measure. That record, not a different record, that record, God did something with it. God takes that record, not you, God does it, and he puts it aside, verse 14 says. The, the language that Paul uses it means to to pluck up or raise up from the midst of and, and put, put it away. So he comes in, he lays his hands on the record of debt, as it were, and removes it from the courtroom. And he does all of this, Paul says at the end of 14, by nailing it to the cross. Even the way that he says it, the set aside, he, I know you guys were like, it's been a long time since he's had some grammar. Rest assured, here is some. The way that he says it, he puts it in the perfect, meaning that there is to the one forgiven by God, there is present freedom from that indebtedness after the complete abrogation of the debts. So God takes that record of debt that can't be denied, legally binding, has its demands, and he removes it from you and he nails it to the cross. You obviously can see the imagery. You might say, well, Christ was nailed to the cross. He was. But was he not nailed there in the place of others? 
Doesn't that just change the way you ought to see the cross of Jesus Christ as you see him by faith nailed to the cross and published publicly? That ought to have been you. But God nails that debt there on that day, removing it from you. A transfer of debt occurs at the cross of Christ, where he dies in the place of sinners. And sinners are now forgiven of sin and clothed in righteousness. It actually transforms the imagery of the cross. The cross was uh, cursed in the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And there's like vivid uh, imagery involved in why that is. The elevation of a person, a malefactor, a, a, an enemy, a criminal, up in a tree actually like depicted something that's not really great to depict. It meant that the earth doesn't want you anymore, but neither does heaven. That's why you're suspended between the two. Nobody wants you. That's what sin does to us. That's why we deserve to be cursed. The cross hijacking that imagery is the place actually where heaven and earth become reconciled in the person who hangs between the two. He's actually able to transform the picture of the curse and say, by this means, I forgive sons and daughters. By this means, I pay the debt on their behalf. It's as though Christ takes the pen of his own blood and writes over yours. And his signature carries much more authority than yours. My debts charge them to me. My debts charge them to me. And rather than just saying he'll pay them and not paying them, he actually pays them to the most minute detail. He takes it, and in the nailing of the sun, he nails your debts there as well. Thirdly, the rulers are put to open shame. You might have thought that Paul would stop there. I mean, how do you, it's hard to get like much Better than that, the debt of your sin being canceled. But look, look at where Paul, he's not done yet. He says in verse 15, of the one nailed to the tree, he in doing this disarms the rulers and the authorities. The, the way that he, or we, we've run into these two groups, rulers and authorities, multiple times already in Colossians. And we've said at different points that they, are words that describe uh, very real spiritual forces, usually of a negative nature, right? The enemy of your soul could be described, and with his legions, as rulers and authorities. So when he says that these rulers and authorities are the object of something that he does, what is the thing that he does? Well, he disarms them. The idea is that of... Well, it begins as combat and it goes towards a victory march later. But it's as though with one stroke, the weapon in their hand is stricken to the ground. They then cannot harm 
anyone anymore. The, the word to disarm means to strip of power, of weaponry, and of armor. They are laid bare. The ones who threatened your soul the moment before that happened are laid in the dust, unable to assault you, unable to harm you. Uh, uh, They have no legal case at all. He strips them of armor and power and removes the legal or the legal cases before them by paying it with Christ. As G.K. Beale says, this satanic power over people because of sin's dominance, uh, excuse me, this satanic power over people because of sin's dominance over them was broken through the forgiveness at the cross. I say, why is that an important thing? Brothers and sisters, sin and sin's guilt wasn't just forgiven you. Sin's power over you was broken too. I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you. You need to hear that. And I need to hear that. Because there are times, are there not, where old sin masters rattle the broken pieces of their weaponry to scare you. And you jump to obey them. You need to remember their power over me has been broken. Amen. Their weaponry that I like, you, you're like, I still bear the marks, shattered. Their military strength annihilated. You do not need to obey them any longer. I say, it's not easy. I didn't say it was easy. I just said, their authority's broken over you. You don't have to obey them anymore. You can tell them, not even politely, to take a hike. Because you've been conquered by someone more powerful than them. And they don't have legal right or dominion over you again or at all. He not just does that, but the main verb that drives verse 15 is to put to shame, and it's them who've been put to shame. The idea is to lay in public display, in mock and disgrace. It's like God, through the foolishness of a cross, decided to embarrass his enemy. They thought that they were, and we'll get to this in just a second, they thought they were laying Christ to open shame. Little did they know they were the ones being put to public shame. They wanted it to be public. And it says, oh God says, you want a public trial? Okay, it's not going to go well for you. And he lays them to disgrace on the top of a hill with the world and universe watching. Not only does he do that, but the last phrase in verse 15, he triumphs over them in him. The word he uses to triumph is a word for uh, exerting total victory and even that of like like a triumphal parade. 
where the remnants, the broken pieces of their military power are shown to the citizens of that country of see what we did to them. Crushed them, laid them bare, parade them through the streets. When we look at the cross of Christ, We need to see it with eyes of faith. You might say Christ was stripped. They gambled for his clothes. They hung him on the cross, exposed. And then with the eye of faith, you need to say, oh, but he was not the one stripped that day. My enemies were. You might say he looks helpless. No, no, no. There was a helpless one there. It wasn't him, though. It was your enemies over your soul. You might say he was nailed to the tree, became a curse. Your record of debt was nailed to the tree along with him. And those debts cannot rise against you any longer. The authority that those enemies had over you have no authority any longer. So two quick points of application as we close. What then do I do when old memories flood? I'd say bubble up, but they flood of what I've done. You ever had that? Old memories of what you said and what you've done? Come pouring in. Where do I take such things? I take it right back here. I would say self. He has dealt with that on the cross. That sin was laid on Christ. That sin was covered in his blood. That qualifies under the heading All our transgressions. It's one of them. It's a bad one. It finds its place there. Not outside of it. And so if, if I look at me in those moments, I find no hope in me wrestling with the realities of what I've said, done, thought. Neither do you. I take that transgression or the memory of it and I drag it kicking and screaming to the cross and say, look, the record's nailed there. I'll leave you to him. But he dealt with you. And that's how I will deal with you. The second point of application is what happens when old masters come barking orders again? I tell them, your power has been shattered. Leave. Leave. I belong to someone else now. And if you have if you if you want conflict, you have to pick it up with him. But I am not your slave anymore. I'm a different, I'm a slave to him. And being a slave to him is the best thing in the world. Amen. So if you're a Christian. You will never grow beyond these truths, 
And that's a good thing. You need to take your heart to these truths daily. Every day, dragging them, kicking and screaming. Look at what Christ has done. They won't rise again. He's made an end of them. If you're here this morning and you are not saved, you're still trapped back in verse 13, the first half. Dead in trespasses with an unchanged heart. But I'll augment what I've just said slightly. You're not trapped there. The door is standing wide open to you. And I would simply ask you, why will you not go to Christ today and ask him to save your soul? There's no sin too great. There's no sinner too messed up. There's no sinner too old or too young. He came to save sinners. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would work mightily in our hearts and in our minds today. Oh God, drive us to the gospel. Drive us faithfully to the place where our Savior made an end of all those who stood against us. Our Father, we pray that you would secure our our hearts before you, O God. We confess that we are often troubled, and we try through various means to salve a troubled soul. Help us to run to you. Help us to go to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, And just look again at Christ upon the tree and know full forgiveness. Father, I pray for those who have heard the word gone out today that do not know you. Oh God, be mighty to save. Save for your glory and for your name and for their good. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.